Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor John Barrow, Professor of Mathematical Sciences at Cambridge University, sheds light upon the expanding universe and asks what the significance is of its age, shape and size at the annual Herschel Lecture. OK, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this joint lecture of the William Herschel Society uh, and uh, the University of Bath. Uh, my name's Peter Ford. I'm the uh, chair of the William Herschel Society, and for something like 20 years I was uh, a member of the physics department of this esteemed university. Now, following tradition, I have to make two announcements. Firstly, can you make sure your mobile phones are switched off? Uh, and secondly, in the event of a fire, and uh, you get out there and there, no, there, and uh, as fast as you can, I think you see the thing. Uh, anyway, uh, certainly in my many years here, uh, we never had a fire, so uh, that's one good thing. Um, it's uh, a great pleasure to welcome today's speaker, uh, Professor John Barrow from Cambridge, who's going to talk about our place in the universe. Uh, appropriate uh, that uh, we have a uh, lecture here, uh, because the William Herschel Society, uh, not surprisingly, is named after William Herschel, who discovered the planet Uranus on uh, 13th of March 1781, a long time ago, in 19 New King Street, Bath, which is behind Sainsbury's. Uh, and um, so, by so doing, it was the first uh, planet known since antiquity, and um, double the size of a known solar system. Uh, now, John is a very appropriate lecture to have. Uh, just one or two things. He's um, Professor of Mathematical Sciences at Cambridge University, spent many years at, at Cambridge, but also some years at Sussex. Uh, he's the director of a Millennium Maths Project, which is very good. He's a prolific author, and his latest book is on sale there. And, indeed, the latest book on Herschel uh, is uh, also a few copies available from Mike Tab, <coughs> who's a member for William Herschel Committee. And then um, John has published prolifically both popular books and uh, research papers, and uh, we're delighted to see him here. So without any more ado, I'll welcome uh, Professor John Barrett. Thank Well, thank you very much. It almost seems a home from home. My college is in Herschel Road in Cambridge, and I assume that's why I've been invited to give this lecture. <laughs> well, I want to try and tell you something about what's been going on in cosmology in recent years and how our changing view of the universe is linked both to new observations and to rather deeper, unusual questions about our own place in the universe and the way in which uh, our own presence in the universe actually affects the way we assess theories in modern cosmology. Well, last year, when it was Darwin year, I always liked to give lectures which began with the words, the most important discovery in science was that the universe was expanding. So that discovery was made in the 20th century. It was made at the end of the 1920s by Lemaitre and then observationally by Hubble. And uh, this picture here shows uh, a famous graph that's become known as Hubble's Law. Hubble was an interesting man. He came to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar 
in his youth. His career was something of the uh, inverse of modern astronomers. He started as a boxer, uh, and then he became a lawyer, and then he became an astronomer. He was quite a good boxer. Uh, he fought a draw against the world light heavyweight champion. So he was a huge man, uh, six foot four and a half tall, uh, military major. In fact, at the telescope, he always insisted that other astronomers, junior astronomers, called him major. So he's a rather pompous individual um, and lived in Beverly Hills in the Charlie Chaplin sort of movie set, which he, he liked to frequent. But uh, he was a good astronomer, and his great discovery which led to the Hubble Space Telescope and many other things being named after him, was the expansion of the universe. And the way he did that was to notice that the light coming to his telescopes from stars in distant galaxies had a systematic shift in its colour, which he was able to interpret as a Doppler shift, a uh, Doppler shift we're familiar with from sound, but there was a systematic shifting of the colour frequency spectrum in the light from distant galaxies, which he interpreted as being due to the fact that those sources of light were moving away from us. So the Doppler shift you're familiar with, even though you perhaps don't realise it, if you're trying to get to sleep tonight in Bath uh, and one of your colleagues is driving their motorcycle past your window at three in the morning at half high speed, you recognize the characteristic sound as they go past. Okay, so the first part of that sound where the frequency is rising, that's where the sound is coming towards you, the motorcycle is coming towards you, and then as it goes past, the sound frequency is lowered because the source of the sound is receding from you. If you could measure the change in pitch in the sound, you could work out how fast the motorcyclist is going. So Hubble similarly was able to work out the change in frequency between uh, a designated uh, atomic light source of oxygen, say, or sodium in a laboratory and the light coming from the distant star so he could figure out how fast it was moving away. So you could do that very accurately, uh, even though it would take him all night just to measure one of these so-called red shifts. To work out the distances is much harder, and there's always been large systematic errors in calibrating that distance scale, which have only perhaps very recently been removed satisfactorily. This is an old picture. It shows you the situation probably around the 1980s, 1990s with these observations. Hubble's original observations would sort of sit down here. But we've got much better at seeing things that are very faint and very far away. So these observations pretty good straight line all the way up to 50 megaparsecs. Here's the latest story at the top where we're out to nearly 400 megaparsecs. Okay, and huge quantities of data here. Here's the speed. Here's the distance. So this is Hubble's law, which tells you that in some sense the universe is expanding. That's one of those sentences which uh, uh, sounds simple, but when you think about it twice, you wonder what on earth does it mean? Uh, what's expanding? We're not expanding. Bath's not expanding. The Earth's not expanding. Solar system's not expanding. The Milky Way galaxy isn't expanding. Our local group of galaxies is not expanding. So what's expanding? All those things I've mentioned are held together by other forces which are much stronger than the effect of the expansion over their dimension. So in the case of you and me, it's chemical forces we don't take part in the expansion of the universe. 
But if you go out to the scale of great clusters of galaxies with thousands of members, these are the markers that are tracing the expansion of the universe. So it's like putting a great lump of dough full of raisins in the oven, raise the temperature of the oven, what happens? Uh, the dough expands, the raisins move away from one another, the raisins themselves don't expand dramatically. So the clusters of galaxies are the raisins in the cosmic cake, and the dough in between is like the empty space. So we're not expanding. Uh, the next odd question to ask about this expansion is that you tend to think of it like an explosion. So the second question people ask is, well, what's it expanding into? Or where's the center of the universe? Where did the Big Bang go off? Well, sorry to disappoint you, but this expansion is not an explosion. There's no something else that the universe is expanding into and plowing through. The universe is everything there is, and there is no center, and there is no edge to this expansion. Well, how can that be? In the case where the universe is infinite, this picture of Escher gives you a very good impression of how that can be. So Escher has here created this rather beautiful engraving uh, to create the impression of a never-ending network of girders. And this is an infinite universe. If you were to sit on this point here and look around you, uh, everything would look the same in every direction. If you were to stand on this point and do the same thing, it would also look the same. So in an infinite universe, every point plays the role of the center. There's no special place. That's why Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in Rome in 1600. What's well, part of the story? Uh, you might think, what's so uh, dangerous about that view? Well, you see, if uh, there is no special place, there's no center, there's no special location for the Earth and for us, which was a cornerstone of Aristotelian philosophy adopted by Catholic Church at the time. So this universe obviously has no edge because it extends forever, and you can see it doesn't have any center either. Suppose we were to heat this picture up, as it were, or the thing that is pictured, the metal would expand, the girders would enlarge in every direction, and if you stood on one of these crossover points and looked around you, you would see all the girders expanding away from you as though you were at the center. And that would be true whatever place you stood and looked. Well, that's all very well, then. When you have an infinite universe, um, it seems clear that you don't have to have a center and you don't have to have an edge. But what about when you have a finite universe? That, seems, that would seem very strange indeed. Suppose we think of a universe as just two-dimensional, um, just like this sheet of paper. At first sight, it seems that it... Something that's finite, like this sheet, has to have a center, and it has to have an edge. How could it be otherwise? Well, well it can be otherwise. Uh, and the way it can be otherwise is if the space is not flat. So if, instead of looking at this flat sheet, we look at a two-dimensional universe for simplicity, which is the surface of a ball or the surface of a balloon, then it's spherical if we don't worry about that, and we mark our stars and galaxies on the surface, and then we inflate the balloon. Then these stars and galaxies will move away from one another steadily, and again, whichever one you located yourself on, if you're a little ant and looking around, 
uh, you would see everything else moving away from you as though you were at the center. And if you walked around on the surface, you would never run into an edge. So this curved ball uh, is an example of a surface which is finite but has no boundary. A three-dimensional universe of space which is finite would be like the three-dimensional curved surface of an imaginary four-dimensional ball. So this is just to give you impression of how it can be if you allow space to be curved that even if a space is finite, it need have no edge and no center. And again, when you inflate this balloon, of course, the real center of that inflation uh, doesn't lie on the surface of the balloon. It lies in some other imaginary dimension. <clears throat> well, this Hubble idea of the expanding universe gave rise to uh, the idea that the universe might be enormously old. If you run the expansion backwards, many, many billions of years, there seemed to be an apparent beginning to the expansion. And pretty soon, in the 1930s, uh, and then after the Second World War, there was great interest in trying to figure out what the age of the universe could be, how it would be correlated with the ages of other things, like planets and stars. I noticed the uh, other year when I was shopping in the uh, supermarket, I picked up a little sachet of rock salt, and I found that this... Uh, uh, the producer of this product had sort of taken on board these enormous timescales, and it told me that the salt I was buying is over 200 million years old, formed through ancient geological process in the German mountain ranges, best before April 2003. <laughs> uh, I think it's the German sense of humour, actually. Well, the picture that we have of the expanding universe <clears throat> in a, uh, a format that we're going to see a number of different times slightly changed. We're plotting here some measure of size. That's a separation between those great clusters of galaxies or some other marker where they are uh, against time. And here the time is in billions of years. And we live about 13.7 plus or minus 0.1 billion years after the apparent beginning of the expansion. <coughs> And today the universe is rather cool. The average temperature is about three degrees above absolute zero. Um, and we're on the scene. There are planets. There are stars. Uh, all the exciting things uh, almost seem to be over. But if we ran the clock backwards, we uncover the most important aspect of the expanding universe. And that is that the overall conditions are steadily changing the temperature, the density, the intensity of light, and so forth. Suppose you ran the clock back to when the universe was a thousand times more compressed, when it was about a quarter of a million years old. The temperature would be a thousand times higher, about 3,000 degrees. There wouldn't be any stars and planets. There wouldn't be any molecules and atoms. There would just be protons, very light nuclei, electrons, photons, miscellaneous elementary particles. As the universe runs forward from there, you first of all cool off enough to make simple atoms and some molecules like hydrogen, uh, and then some parts of the expansion that are a bit denser than the average, they expand a bit more slowly than the others, <coughs> they attract more material to themselves, they start to separate off from the expansion. So they're like self-contained <coughs> island regions. Their local gravity forces are stronger than the effect of the expansion. 
and they will eventually form those great clusters of galaxies and galaxies themselves. And within those galaxies, stars will form the first stars and then later stars with planetary systems around them. We now know there are hundreds and hundreds of stars with planetary systems, or with planets around them at least, uh, and a few uh, have displayed planetary systems. The case of the Earth, we know just a few billion years ago, the first uh, microscopic life forms appear, uh, and then by some process that's far from fully understood, uh, we arrive at more complicated life forms like ourselves. The long-range forecast is rather bleak. Eventually, the sun will exhaust its energy supply. Uh, it will expand and dramatically implode to form a white dwarf, as we'll see later on, about 20 billion years uh, after it started its lifetime. And then eventually, all the other stars will gradually follow suit, and the universe will become a sort of cosmic graveyard of dead and dying stars. So what you learn from that is that there's a special interval of cosmic history after the stars form, but before they all die, when you would expect living observers and astronomers to be on the scene, if they're going to be on the scene at all. So this little niche of inhabitable cosmic history, uh, which of course uh, includes the time when we're sitting here talking about it, biases what we see of the universe and some of the conclusions that we draw about it. Well, let's look at one or two of those. Uh, we just said the universe is 13.7 or so billion years old. Let's call it 14 billion. It's a round number. Uh, why is the universe so old? You know, why have we found the universe to be so old? Well, you and I and anything else that's complicated and biochemical uh, are made out of particular sorts of atoms and molecules. And those atoms rely on things that are heavier than hydrogen helium gases. In particular, carbon, uh, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, all these biochemically active elements. And they appear in the universe by a process of nuclear alchemy that relies on the stars. So helium nuclei, which come from <coughs> the early moments of the expansion, combine nuclear reactions to make beryllium, uh, and then helium and beryllium makes carbon. And if you're not careful, you could lose all your carbon with another helium uh, alpha particle to make oxygen. Uh, and beyond this, there's a sequence of further nuclear reactions that will make heavier elements. So these elements are made uh, in the final throes of uh, a stage of stellar evolution when stars uh, explode and enter a supernova phase. And then these biologically interesting elements are distributed around the universe through supernova explosions. They may even pass through stars again uh, and then be ejected a second time before they find their way into lumps and rocks and planets and you and me. So all the carbon nuclei in your bodies have at some stage passed through uh, a star in this way. But these processes uh, take a very long time to complete. They take many billions of years for stars to run this course and produce these elements. So you begin to see that if you want the universe to contain the building blocks of complexity, to have astronomers uh, and other life forms in it, it's got to be old enough to make the building blocks of living complexity. So it's no accident that we find the universe to be billions and billions of years old. We couldn't exist in a universe that was significantly younger.
This is closely linked with the issue of why we find the universe to be so big. Uh, the universe is 15 billion light years uh, in every direction, uh, as far as we could see with a perfect telescope. And this is strongly connected with the point that we just made. You see, because the universe is expanding, its size is inextricably bound up with its age. And the universe extends <coughs> tens of billions of light years because it's been expanding uh, for tens of billions of years. So if the universe was significantly smaller, it would also be significantly younger. You might think we could have a universe that was just the size of the Milky Way galaxy. It's 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, uh, enough to have lots of planets and a very, very high probability of evolving complicated life. But a universe the size of the Milky Way galaxy would be about a month old and wouldn't have time to evolve all the complicated molecules and nuclei that you need for biochemistry. So the fact that the universe is so big, while it may improve the probability of there being other forms of life within the universe, the universe would have to be pretty much as big as it is just to support one outpost of life. So this is a rather striking and unexpected interconnection between the size of the universe uh, and ourselves. <clears throat> the universe is also just about empty. Uh, to a first approximation, there's nothing in it. If we were to smooth all the atoms that make stars and planets and you and me uh, evenly over the universe, the average density would just result in one atom in every cubic meter of space. So you couldn't possibly make a vacuum that was evacuated as much as that in any laboratory on Earth. So there is very little material in the universe, very little gravitational attraction, therefore, that's slowing the expansion, allowing it to expand, therefore, for a long time. We can express that density in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I said you could think of it as one atom in a cubic meter. If you gathered all those atoms up into things like planets the size of the Earth, it would correspond to running into one of those every 10 light years that you traveled in any direction or to a star like the Sun every 1,000 light years, or a galaxy like the Milky Way every 100 billion light years. So you begin to get a feel <coughs> also for why uh, the universe is not teeming with uh, living beings and people signaling to us uh, from relatively close by. The distances between stars and between galaxies are going to be enormous because the average density of the universe is so low. So here's a little picture of uh, um, Saturn here backlit by the light from the sun. It's a beautiful Hubble Space Telescope picture that uh, you almost never see. And you can see one of the moons there and another one down there. Another consequence of having to have a universe that's extremely old and therefore extremely large, uh, extremely expanded, is it's going to be very cool, as I always used to tell our children. Uh, so if you have a lot of expansion of a ball of material and radiation, then the temperature falls inversely, like the size of the ball. And so the fact that the universe is extremely cool today, just a few degrees above absolute zero, is a consequence of the enormous age and enormous amount of expansion. One of the odd uh, byproducts uh, of 
this feature of the universe is that the sky is dark at night. So this may seem uh, an unusual observation, but if you look at a typical astronomical picture like this deep field here, <coughs> Hubble Deep Field, with all its thousands of whole galaxies on it in different states of evolution and shape and color, uh, in some ways the most unusual feature of the picture is the dark uh, black space in between the galaxies. 300 years ago or so, uh, Edmund Halley, uh, of Halley's Comet fame, good friend of Newton, who Newton tried to sort of set up as the head of the mint in Chester, I think, um, somewhat disastrously, and Halley had to be removed for incompetence, uh, but fortunately he returned to doing rather good science and mathematics. Halley was the first person to ask this question, why is the sky dark at night? So how do you come to think in that way? It sounds like he ought to get out more, perhaps, or something. Um, <clears throat> what he had in mind is the following. If you look into a forest like this, then everywhere your line of sight ends on the trunk of a tree. And as you scan across the forest, uh, you just see a great phalanx of tree trunks. So Halley wondered, well, if the universe is infinite, or even if it's finite but just very big, shouldn't the same thing happen when we look out into the universe? Every line of sight ought to end on a star. So as we look out, <coughs> we should eventually have our line of sight end on the surface of a star. So the whole of the sky should look like the surface of the sun all the time. And there should never be any night. So this became known as Olber's paradox. Because a German <coughs> astronomer called Olbers wrote about it in a book some years later, and it ended up taking his name. It was never resolved until uh, the 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century, and the discovery of the expanding universe. You see, what the expanding universe shows you is that there actually was a time when the sky was bright, but it was in the past. When the universe was a thousand times less expanded than today, the temperature was 3,000 degrees, the whole of the sky did indeed look as bright as the sun. So in the past, before it was possible for life to exist and astronomers to see things like that, the sky was bright. But the enormous amount of expansion has so downgraded the energy and intensity and luminosity of the radiation that the sky is dark today. If we were just to take all that matter in the universe, that one atom in every cubic meter, and convert it into radiation just like that, by E equals mc squared, we would hardly notice any astronomical effect. All that would happen is that the temperature of the universe would go up from 3 degrees above absolute zero to about 15 degrees above absolute zero. There just isn't enough matter in the universe to illuminate the sky today. And that's a consequence of the enormous age and the enormous amount of expansion. So we have a sort of preliminary <coughs> set of <coughs> excuse me, interesting uh, remarks and conclusions that we've seen that if we want to have a universe that's going to be able to give rise to the building blocks of living complexity uh, and perhaps have observers themselves, 
then it's got to have a number of rather counterintuitive properties. It's got to be almost empty, it's got to be big, it's got to be old, it's got to be dark, it's got to be cold. So if you talk to philosophers in the 19th century and the first uh, half of the 20th century, like Bertrand Russell, they would have argued quite fervently that all these sorts of conditions in the universe were somehow antithetical to life, and, uh, and life sort of arose as an accident in spite of these features of the universe. But modern astronomy turns this type of philosophical perspective completely upside down, and we now recognize that these are necessary conditions for the evolution of life of any complicated sort in a universe. Well, the universe doesn't just expand. Universes are like your stocks and shares. You know, they may not only go up, but they can also go down. In fact, they can plummet. Uh, and here's our size against time picture again. Previously, we just looked at things that expanded. But universes are like anything else that moves under gravity. If they have more uh, energy of motion than gravitational potential energy of attraction pulling them back, they will keep on expanding forever, just like the rocket launched from Cape Canaveral with more than the escape velocity from the Earth, 11 kilometers per second. But if they expand more slowly initially, they will eventually slow down, reverse, contract, back to a big crunch. And in between, there's a sort of British compromise universe, uh, which has just the right amount of uh, expansion speed to make it to infinity. If you added one more particle to it, uh, it would crunch. I also remember that many, many years ago, now, I was invited to go and give a talk to Mrs. Thatcher and some members of her cabinet about cosmology. Seems very unlikely, but um, I think this was all to convince the other members of the cabinet that she was the only one who knew anything about science. And you had to go and do a little rehearsal for a few minutes while they were putting the bulletproof glass in the cheap Chief Whip's office. And uh, so the, the science, uh, the, the head of the, uh, the cabinet office sort of asked if I would just talk for five minutes so they'd just get a feel for what the talk might be like. And uh, although I was talking about dark matter, I showed a slide rather like this, and, and I mentioned this in-between British compromise universe. And then after five minutes or so, he said, oh, stop, stop, stop. He said, it's all, we think it's okay. Uh, he said, I've just got one thing to say. And he said, when you mention that British universe, try to be much more upbeat. It's <laughs> just the sort of thing the Prime Minister likes to hear about. <laughs> so I jumped through the bulletproof glass. <laughs> good to know we were in such good hands. Uh, well, the sort of thing that cosmologists are interested in doing uh, is reconstructing the past here, uh, finding out what happened as we extrapolate back to higher and higher temperatures and higher iron densities, and better than that, try and find things that happen that leave fossils and remnants and things you can go and observe to check whether your reconstruction is correct. Well, in 1948, two uh, graduate students of George Gamow realized that if the universe did indeed have this hot, dense past, there must be some radiation around today, almost like fallout from an explosion, which you could go and search out. And they predicted that you ought to find heat radiation in the universe with a temperature of about 5 degrees above absolute zero. They were able to constrain that temperature because of other effects, nuclear reactions that would occur uh, in the early stages. 
Well, nobody took much notice of that prediction, but this radiation was found by accident in 1965 by Penzias and Wilson, who subsequently received the Nobel Prize for that discovery. Uh, and what they discovered was black body radiation uh, with a temperature of about 2.7 degrees Kelvin. So today, uh, it's measured with extraordinary precision from above the Earth's atmosphere by satellite. Here's a picture of the intensity versus the frequency for uh, the best determination of the spectrum that's made by the COBE satellite. Uh, these points are just to guide uh, the eye. Uh, the continuous curve is a 2.7315 degree uh, black body Planck spectrum. These observations uh, are of the best black body, the most perfect pure heat spectrum ever observed in nature. The error bars on these points on this curve are 500 times smaller than the thinnest line that could be drawn. So they're uh, unrepresentable, sort of in a conventional way, as just points on the curve. So what this is telling you is the universe was once extraordinarily hotter and denser than it is today. Hot enough and dense enough to relax radiation into a black body heat spectrum. People are rather expecting that there will be little features in this spectrum, uh, witnessing to violent events in the past history of the universe, and, and this will be rather interesting. You would be able to learn something about those events. So it came really as a dramatic surprise that it was totally featureless. Uh, and uh, that's consistent with the fact, as we learned later, that probably most of the material in the universe does not take part in electromagnetic interactions, but just in weak interactions, and so wouldn't couple to this radiation. If we go further into the past, this radiation would have been last scattered towards us when the universe was about a quarter of a million years old. Before that, it would be interacting with electrons. The universe is like a great plasma. When it reaches about a quarter of a million years in age, temperature falls to a few thousand degrees, the radiation becomes free and collisionless and sort of wings its way towards us, just like the photons leaving the sun uh, and coming to us on Earth. So when we observe this radiation, we are taking a snapshot of the universe when it was a quarter of a million years old. If we keep going into the past, when the universe would be between about one second and three minutes old, the temperature would be between a billion and ten million degrees. And that's hot enough for nuclear reactions to occur everywhere in that plasma. And the simplest reactions would combine protons and neutrons uh, to make deuterium, and then two deuteriums make a helium-3, uh, or tritium, isotope of hydrogen, uh, and then deuterium and helium-3, or deuterium and tritium, or deuterium and deuterium, okay, can go on and make helium-4, which is very tightly bound. You make very little of anything bigger than helium-4. You make a little bit of stuff. The interesting thing about this sequence of reactions, the physics of the early universe tells you what the initial abundances of neutrons and protons are determined just by the temperature where weak interactions between them turn off. So what happens when the universe is between one second and three minutes old doesn't depend on the beginning of the universe at all. just depends on thermal equilibrium and nuclear reactions. 
And here's a famous type of picture of the events that ensue as you go from 10 seconds, say, to 10 to the 4 seconds. Temperature falls from 3 billion to uh, 100 million degrees. And you see here's the deuterium uh, building up here in green, and then there's a bit of destruction. It levels out. Here's the helium-4. Uh, here's the tritium. Here's some lithium-7. Notice there's a big surge of nuclear reactions when the universe is about 100 seconds old, and then everything levels off. Universe is expanding and cooling. Nuclear reactions get turned off. But the outputs of these processes, 23% of the mass of the universe should be in the form of helium-4, and about 2 times 10 minus 5 of the universe is deuterium and helium-3, and about 1 in 10 billion of the universe's atoms in the form of lithium-7. And they're exactly the abundances of those elements that we find in the universe everywhere we look in our galaxy and in other galaxies. So we believe that the origin of all these lightest elements, helium, lithium, deuterium, uh, is in these first moments of the Big Bang. And we have a way of testing that what we're saying is correct, it makes sense, right back to when the universe is just a few seconds old. This sounds bizarre in some ways. You think, surely when the universe is just a few seconds old, conditions must be so extreme we couldn't possibly understand what's going on. But remember how low the density is today. If we contract the universe by a factor of 10 billion to get back to this time and temperature, the density on average is only the density uh, of the water in this glass. So the conditions are not bizarre or unknowable at all. We understand that sort of physics extremely well. So this is... Uh, another key piece of evidence that uh, reconstruction of the state of the universe back to just a few seconds uh, is in pretty good shape. Nonetheless, by the beginning of the 1980s, people were concerned uh, about three problems uh, about this overall picture. Uh, the first was one we saw on this picture. Our universe expands today tantalizingly close to that critical divide the British Compromise Universe. That's a puzzle because you can see from this picture, without doing any mathematics, that this is unstable. So if you start off exactly with the right velocity to be on that track, you'll stay there. But if you wiggle infinitesimally away from it, you'll either peel off in this direction or you'll run away up here. And if you expand too fast up here, no stars and galaxies can ever form expansion pulls them apart too quickly. So we wanted to understand how could it be that our universe had this very, very special starting condition that kept it close to that divide for billions of years. It seemed to require the starting speed to be chosen with an accuracy of one part in ten followed by 35 zeros. Seems rather unlikely. The other oddities about the expansion uh, the expansion goes at the same rate in every direction to a precision of a part in 100,000. So it is like an expanding spherical ball. But most of the solutions for expanding universes, in Einstein's theory, do much more complicated things. They expand at different rates in different directions. They rotate. They're distorted. So this is a very special type of universe. It's very smooth, 
It's isotropic, same in all directions. And although it's smooth, it's not perfectly smooth. It better not be perfectly smooth or we wouldn't be here. So there's some graininess in the universe that's seen in the form of stars and galaxies and clusters. And that graininess is at a level of about a part in 100,000. So we'd like to know where does that come from? Uh, what was the origin of these little lumps and bumps that turned into galaxies and stars? If the graininess was weaker, just a part in a million, no stars and galaxies would have formed, and we wouldn't be here. If the graininess was ten times stronger, part in ten to the four, everything would have collapsed into black holes and dense uh, lumps and objects, not into stars and galaxies. So it's rather important that this graininess is just around uh, the value that we see. Well, these were awkward problems uh, in 1980. Uh, and that year, the year after, Alan Gurthard, then at Stanford, came up with a new idea in cosmology that's become the central picture of the expanding universe ever since. And it's known as the inflationary universe, reflection of the times in which it was conceived. And the idea of inflation is very simple. If you had watched carefully at some of these size against time pictures I'd drawn before, they all curve over in this concave uh, sense. You're a mathematician, that means the second derivative of this curve is negative. So that's a reflection of the fact that the universe is decelerating when it expands. Because once the expansion starts, the only force acting is gravity between the constituents, pulling everything back, putting the brakes on, and decelerating things. Guth's idea was that there's a short interlude of very, very early cosmic history in that first second when the expansion accelerates. So the curvature of this line changes <coughs> upwards. This wasn't a totally ad hoc idea. Particle physicists at the time had discovered that their new theories had all sorts of new types of particle and energy state in them which exhibited negative pressure. And these states could anti-gravitate. They had repulsive gravitational effects upon each other because of their tension uh, rather than just their density. And so if these sorts of particles appeared here, they would quickly dominate the expansion, create this effect, but then they might just decay away into ordinary matter and radiation after a short period, leaving the universe to resume normal expansion. The consequences of having this little period are enormous. You can already see from this picture the universe becomes much bigger than it would have become by any subsequent time. It also pushes the universe fantastically close to that critical divide between the closed and the ever-expanding universes. <clears throat> it does so exponentially quickly. And so a very brief interlude of this acceleration can explain why we're so close to that critical divide today. <clears throat> Also, once this type of expansion takes hold, any deviations from the expansion rate in different directions are evened out very, very quickly. And at the end of this period, the expansion will be fantastically isotropic, very great precision. So two of the big problems of the universe would be solved by this little interlude of accelerated expansion. This is showing exactly the same 
uh, idea again, just sort of the other way round. If we sit in the universe today with a perfect telescope, we can see 14 billion light years. That's what that is in centimetres. And if we run the expansion backwards, we can say, how small was the region which expanded and grew into our whole visible universe? And in the ordinary picture, <clears throat> that's a very problematic question to ask. Because when we run this region backwards, we find that it's always much bigger than the distance light could have travelled at any time in the past. So it's a big mystery as to why the universe looks the same here as it looks here. Because there hadn't been time for light to pass across it and coordinate and smooth out differences. <clears throat> In a sense, the universe didn't expand fast enough. But if we have this accelerated expansion, we can do that quite easily. So we can grow the whole of the observable universe from a region that's small enough to be coordinated from one side to the other by light signals. Here the time's been taken as 10 to the minus 35 a second. Speed of light's 10 to the 10 centimeters a second. And so... The size of the region is 10 to the minus 25 a centimetre. The whole structure of our visible universe inherits the structure of that tiny patch of coordinated matter and energy. If we didn't have uh, acceleration, our whole visible universe would have come from a region that was 10 to the 25 times bigger. Well, this idea <coughs> is quite nice. Um, people then quickly realized that there was a big payoff from this idea. This would explain why the universe as a whole was rather smooth and uniform. But there always have to be statistical and quantum fluctuations of some sort in a small region. And we could calculate what they would be, because once the inflation occurred, it would stretch out those quantum fluctuations, and they should be visible in the universe today uh, as variations in the temperature of that background heat radiation that we had seen. And also, those fluctuations could be the seeds out of which the galaxies and then the stars and everything else formed. So uh, it's possible for us to make observations today to test whether those fluctuations were created when the universe was 10 to the minus 35 a second old. And very large and spectacular satellite missions from NASA and the European Space Agency have been mapping those fluctuations in great detail in the last 10 years or so. So here's a recent map of the sky put on the surface of a ball. This is just a temperature contour map of the radiation in the sky. Changes in colour are about a ten thousandth or so of a degree. And what you do with this is to subject it to a statistical analysis, work out the power spectrum, work out the statistics of the hot uh, and the cold spots. And you're then in business to compare those analyses with your detailed mathematical predictions of what should emerge from one of these bouts of accelerated expansion. And I put here uh, side by side uh, pictures from quite a while ago of the... Um, uh, so-called Wilkinson map, W map mission. So this is just the changing colour up here, just the, the fluctuations. And this is the angular scale. Uh, the moon, the full moon, is half a degree. Okay? 
And you can see the theoretical predictions are very characteristic. It's like the ringing of a bell. There is a great peak, and then things die away and damp out and oscillate as you go to smaller scales. And uh, the points were the data from, I think, about seven minus four, four years, four or five years ago. And you can see you've established that first peak really uh, very impressively on very small scales. You've got large error bars. Here's the much more recent, uh, earlier this year, the seven-year data from the same satellite. See what's happened. This has stayed much the same. But more and more observations, you now see the third peak. Everything's really looking rather uh, impressive. So if inflation hadn't occurred, if we hadn't had this burst of acceleration, this picture would look pretty much just horizontal. You wouldn't have these big peaks. Another part of the picture I'm not showing because it's rather boring. Uh, all the way back down here, there's a sort of a straight line, dead straight line. If we use our observations on the ground as well as with satellites, we can fill in a lot more of that detailed structure here. So these observations, I think, are extremely impressive. They are really telling us that something like inflation occurred in our past, in our universe and that this is uh, probably the source of the fluctuations that turned into stars and galaxies. At the moment, there is a European Space Agency mission which is doing this even better with higher resolution and looking for other features of this radiation, like its polarization. Uh, the mission theory team here in Cambridge are rather secretive. They won't tell you uh, in any way what they might have found or what they might not have found. We hope that in January, February, you might start to get some science announcements from this team. Just to show you how competitive uh, the world of science has become, this was a press release that was put on the BBC. You may have seen it on the BBC's website and on the uh, 10 o'clock news. The week after they launched the satellite and it went through its engineering gymnastics of making sure all the instruments were working. So this was just a little... Uh, a slice from one of their instruments through the sky from the first day of experimental data taking. Two weeks later, a paper appeared on the Astronomical Archive with two Chinese authors who had analysed the press release picture, comparing it with previous slices of the same bit of the sky uh, to try to draw some new deductions about the, uh, uh, about the data that they were collecting. So subsequently, they have randomly scrambled uh, all the information that they have put in press releases. Um, people become very nervous about this sort of thing. You, you might give a lecture about new results, and someone in the audience with a camera may be taking pictures of them so that they can actually analyze all the channels and the information that you are not going to give out uh, about your data. Well, this idea of the inflationary universe has this rather reliable core, if you like. It's observationally testable. But from it sprang two ideas which were much more speculative and unusual. And the first was to ask, well, if you pick on that little patch which is going to inflate, it's going to make the whole of the visible universe that we see, what do we know about it? It's got to inflate enough so that your little patch is big enough and old enough for stars and carbon and astronomers and all those things to have enough time to happen. 
But of course, there are lots of patches. The universe may be infinite. And you might think of this rather like a foam of bubbles. And you heat up the foam, and some of the bubbles get really big and some not so big. And we're in one of the bubbles that's got awfully big. Uh, but what about all the other bubbles? All the other regions? So this theory predicts that if we could wait long enough, or if we could take a godlike view and see beyond our visible universe's horizon, we should expect to find the universe is completely different in structure to what we can see within our horizon. There have always been philosophers who have cautioned rather sceptically that you could never be sure that the universe beyond the horizon was the same as what it is inside. But this is the first time there's been a positive expectation that that would be the case. So geography is going to be a much more complicated subject than when you were at school. And uh, more alarming, it turns out that history is going to be a more complicated subject as well. That when people began to explore this process by which these little bubbles accelerated and expanded, that it turned out that the process was self-perpetuating. That once a bubble undergoes acceleration and inflates, it automatically creates within itself, through quantum fluctuations, the conditions for further parts of it to inflate. And that they will then inflate in turn. And so you have a self-reproducing, in fact, a fractal process, a self-similar process. And if we look at this, we think that we must be in one of these little uh, inflating patches. Uh, the process seems to need no end in the future. Once it starts, it will go on forever. <clears throat> we don't know whether the process as a whole ever had a beginning. It doesn't seem to need a beginning. The overall trajectory is just like an exponential, which never reaches zero. It will go all the way to past infinity. So our own place in this so-called multiverse is rather curious. Our patch will have a beginning in some quantum event that starts it accelerating. But the whole process, the whole multiverse, need not have a beginning. So here's a computer simulation of this so-called eternal or self-reproducing inflation. Uh, some regions here start to inflate. Uh, as they go forwards in time, you move upwards. Uh, and then on top of those peaks, just like stalagmites jumping up from the ground, you get further peaks, and then peaks on peaks, and peaks on peaks on peaks. So this is the runaway process of that self-reproducing eternal inflation. So uh, there are two messages from this sort of change. First, you've got to support your local universe. The, the part of the universe that we see and ever could see may not be typical of the whole. Uh, and so when we come to evaluate the likelihood that our universe has certain properties, uh, given all the possibilities that could have fallen out, we have to take into account some of those considerations we introduced in the first part of the lecture. Uh, what are the features that have to be seen? Otherwise, there couldn't be any observers to talk about the question in the first place. Well, the last thing to say, uh, it's all very well talking about expansion in the past, what's the long-range forecast? Okay, is the universe going to uh, expand forever? Well, until perhaps about 10 years ago, people would have been uh, perhaps uh, 
sort of divided on this question. We are very close to that critical divide. But observations of Hubble's law that we saw at the beginning, you remember the speed against distance picture uh, in recent years, have pretty unambiguously convinced us that the universe is on a trajectory to keep on expanding forever. That what has happened uh, is that we have discovered that the universe has started accelerating again. In some ways, this is something of a moot point. Uh, the life cycle of the sun okay, is such, as I warned earlier, you're looking on this time scale. Four and a half billion years ago, the sun and the earth uh, formed. The sun is gradually warming. It's approaching an energy crisis. It's going to run out of hydrogen. When it does, it will expand dramatically as a red giant, vaporize the inner planets in the solar system, so we better be gone somewhere else when that happens. Uh, then it will implode catastrophically in a planetary nebula and settle down for a future of cooling as a white dwarf, an object the size of the Earth, uh, but with the mass of the Sun. Here's a picture, Hubble Space Telescope picture, of a planetary nebula somewhere else. So this is a, uh, a, planet, a star like the Sun, which has undergone this explosion and cataclysmic uh, contraction. It doesn't produce a single uh, sphere of outgoing material, but there are two in this case. There are probably complicated magnetic fields or rotation involved uh, in this object. But the fate that we've discovered awaits uh, the universe is shown in this picture. Here's our expanding universe trajectory. But <clears throat> when the universe was about 75% of its present size, it changed gear, and it started to accelerate again. It's almost as though something rather like inflation, I mean, it can't be inflation, different physics, is starting all over again. And the universe is now accelerating just like it did once in the past. And this is destined to continue ever-expanding state apparently forever, unless some other rather dramatic course of events occurs. So let's just see uh, how you know that. Uh, here's uh, the scenario that, uh, for the content of the universe that our observations indicate, that there is a form of material in the universe that we call dark energy, which is gravitationally repulsive, like the material that creates inflation. And it makes about 73% of the material in the universe. The rest, 27%, uh, <clears throat> is made up of the sort of stuff that you and I are made of. Uh, and the rest uh, is material that interacts just weakly. It's probably new types of neutrino. We see its gravitational effects everywhere because it determines how fast the luminous things over here, like stars and galaxies, move around. Where do you get those numbers from? Well, you do some rather more detailed work. Here's a graph which shows the fraction of the universe in the form of that dark accelerating energy, the fraction in other matter <coughs> on scales of naught to 1. And there are three sorts of data here. <coughs> this data here comes from those maps of the background radiation, those temperature fluctuations, whose statistics and amplitude depend quite sensitively on the balance between these different types of matter. And that's the curve uh, running across here. Over here are the observations of the Hubble law. 
So looking at distant supernovae that are accelerating away from us. So this is the direct data. And the nice thing is that it's almost orthogonal to the other data. So that when you lump them together, you do much better in terms of error bars than from either individually. But there's a third set of data as well. Those oscillations in the radiation that we see also create oscillations in the matter, in the material that makes galaxies. And we can observe those as well. And that gives you the big green band here. So we have a triple intersection point of these three data sets. And that's where the number 0.73 uh, and 0.27 uh, come from. That's this point here. So in the future, these uh, ellipses are going to narrow down dramatically when that Planck missions data comes along next year. We hope to shrink some of these error bars by a factor of 10 or something like that. Uh, and we will determine determine pretty accurately what this funny mix of matter and dark energy in the universe actually is. But it's all very well knowing what it is, but nobody has any understanding as to why this strange dark energy exists in the universe with this very particular abundance. Uh, it's come on the scene really quite late in the day when the universe uh, had just made all the stars and galaxies if its abundance had been a little bit greater, just by a factor of a few, then there wouldn't be any stars and galaxies. Once the universe starts accelerating, you can't make galaxies anymore. Material is pulled apart too quickly. So it's rather fortunate for us that the fraction of the universe in this type of strange, repulsively gravitating material uh, is balanced as it is. We might take these observations also as proof that this type of inflating anti-gravitational material does indeed exist. So all our observations from these uh, three sources all point to its existence. So the final slide, in a sense, picture that we have of the universe, nice sort of NASA uh, slide here, that we have a universe that has some apparent beginning. Very soon after that apparent beginning, there is this surge of accelerated expansion, which creates little seeds and fluctuations in the temperature, uh, which we can then observe and map when the universe is a few hundred thousand years old. After that, we enter a long dark period where material uh, is at first dark, and then it's illuminated by stars that cluster into galaxies that we see on the sky. But really, comparatively recently in this story, the universe has changed gear, it started to accelerate again. And the biggest unsolved problem in cosmology is to understand why it started to accelerate at that particular time in the past. What is the origin and exact identity of this dark energy accelerating the universe today? And does it have anything to do with the material that created the inflation in the early stages? Okay, thank you.